Well, if you are new to this series, I'll take a second to catch you up real quick. But uh, if you hear something today that interests you and you want to jump in, you want to dig into it a little bit more, you can go right here to bottomofthenightseries.com, botnseries.com, botnseries.com. And uh, you can watch all of the videos. And the other thing I'll tell you that you may not be aware of, there are discussion questions here for each of the messages throughout this series, for each of the parts. And here's why I love the discussion questions so much, because it gives you a chance to sit down with some family or friends or, you know, whoever you want to, and to process through some of this because this is this is content that's great to process through and that's one of the values of being in a, a small group here we have a lot of people who are in groups that meet throughout the week and they just process the content from Sunday and honestly one of the things that you know I've seen happen in my group over and over again is you those people end up learning a whole lot more from each other than they learn from me on Sunday because you, you're able to dig into it and get a lot of different perspectives so you might be interested in grabbing some of those and downloading those and, and having a discussion about this because what we're talking about for the for the course of this series is a topic that needs a lot of processing like it's just not one of those that you can figure out entirely on your own because we're talking about what do you do when you find yourself in a bottom of the ninth moment, and we've simply defined that as this. A bottom of the ninth moment is a moment when you experience a setback that requires a seemingly impossible comeback. It's one of those moments, we've all been there and they look different for all of us, but it's one of those moments where you just feel down and out. It's one of those moments where, you know, whether it's you're facing infertility, you're facing financial issues, you're facing a, a sudden career challenge, you're facing, you know, parenting issues, you're facing, you know, behavioral issues, maybe with a son or a daughter. It may be something where you're facing some health problems or some health challenges or depression or, you know, anxiety or whatever it is. But those moments, they look different for us all. But those moments are so difficult because they feel hopeless. They feel hopeless. And that's what makes them so challenging. You feel down and out and you feel full of doubt. But one of the things we have discussed over and over again throughout this series is this simple idea, this simple truth that just because you feel doubt doesn't mean it's a sign of weakness. Just because you feel doubt doesn't mean that you, know, you have a weak faith. We've actually said doubt is a prerequisite for a great faith. It is not a sign of a weak faith. You, get, you, know, you just got about this much doubt, you just need about that much faith. But when, you, when you're faced with a lot of doubt and when it feels so hopeless, well, that requires a lot of faith. And it is not a bad thing to acknowledge, yeah, I've got doubt, I've got doubt, but I'm not going to stop. Believing. As a matter of fact, the way we've said it is this. We've simply said faith is not the absence of doubt. Faith is moving ahead in spite of your doubt. It is confronting the brutal facts. It's not the absence of doubt. It's not ignoring the reality around you. Faith is saying, I confront the brutal facts. I see exactly what's going on, and I know how hopeless this situation seems. And I know what's in my control, and I see all the things that are not in my control. However, however, in spite of that, I'm going to keep on moving ahead in spite of of my doubt. I'm going to keep on believing. I'm going to keep on trusting. I'm going to keep on following my heavenly father. And the reality is whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I mean, there are a lot more things we have in common than we don't. We're human beings. And so we deal with a lot of this, don't we? And doubt is one of the things we all deal with. And bottom of the ninth moments, we all deal with. We all deal with the emotions of feeling down and out, and we all have to wrestle through how am I going to handle the doubts that I feel in this situation. And as followers of Jesus, you just need to know we believe it is possible because our Heavenly Father models this for us. We believe it's possible for us to confront the brutal facts of our situation. And yet, not in a Pollyanna sort of way, not in a stick my head in the sand and, you know, just put blinders on and don't tell me how bad it is sort of way, but in a very realistic way, say, this is reality in my situation, but I am choosing to keep believing and trusting in my Heavenly Father any way. And so we've been talking through the last few weeks how to process all of that. That being said, 
Here's the reality of the situation. Talking about confronting the brutal facts, here's, here's some of the brutal facts. That there are moments when you and I go through bottom-of-the-night situations, and we all have stories to tell, and we've all watched this happen in friends' lives, where there is a comeback. There is a miracle, so to speak. There is, you know, things do work out. Things do get turned around. You know, the son comes home. The daughter gets her addiction thing under control. The, you know, the marriage gets restored, whatever it is. We've, we've watched experiences like that. And when you open up the stories of the Old Testament and New Testament, and you begin to read the, you know, about the lives of some of these people who've lived throughout history, you discover there are a lot of comeback stories in that as well. You've got people like Abraham and Moses and Joseph and David. I mean, there's some well-known stories. If you grew up in church, you, those are the stories that people told you as a kid, right? They were the stories that were all the Sunday school lessons kind of revolved around. But here's the reality. The reality is not every bottom of the ninth ends in a comeback. Not every bottom of the ninth ends in a miracle. Not every bottom of the ninth ends in an answered prayer. And so what do you do then? What do you do then? What do you do when you lose? How, how do you navigate through those emotions? I mean, how do you make sense of the fact, come on, let's just be honest, how do you make sense of the fact that as Christians we believe we have a heavenly Father who can do anything, and yet he chose not to do something in this situation? How do you make sense of the fact that we have a heavenly Father who our entire faith is centered on the fact that Jesus died and three days later rose again, so a dead man came back to life? If you can pull that off, you can do anything else. And yet we encounter situations and circumstances, and we find ourselves in bottom-of-the-ninth moments where God doesn't do anything. As a matter of fact, sometimes it feels like God is not there. Sometimes it makes us question, doesn't it? Does God even care? Where is he, and why would he let this happen? if he really cared about me. Now, here's one of the things that I find encouraging. This is one of the reasons that I believe these accounts that make up what we call the scriptures or the Bible. Because when you begin to read these stories throughout the Old and New Testament, you find just as many stories, a bottom of the nights that end in losses for people as you do the ending comebacks. Yeah, you got all the stories about the miracles, and we, you know, we're familiar with some of those. But there are just as many stories of people who got no miracle. There are just as many stories of people who got no answered prayer. There are just as many stories of people who it was lights out, game over, and they walked away, not seeing God do what they want them to do. And so what do you do when you find yourself in those moments? Because all of us eventually do, don't we? Some of you are in the middle of one right now. Some of you have just gone through one, and the loss still stings, and the pain is still very raw. Some of you have some in your past, and it's caused you, it's created some doubt, and it's created some, some um, skepticism, and it's created some anger between you and God, and you haven't figured out how to resolve those emotions yet. You haven't figured out how to work your way through that and reconnect with your Heavenly Father because you just can't seem to find answers to your questions. Well, when you open up the New Testament and you begin to read, uh, particularly the historical account of the early life and the early days of the first church and those first followers of Jesus after the resurrection. Luke writes an account, and it's called the book of Acts. We call it the book of Acts. It was just an account called the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of those first followers. And you find that they had, now think about this, they had just witnessed a resurrection. The whole reason these people believe, the whole, they didn't believe before. The whole reason these people believe is because they saw Jesus die, and three days later they saw him walking around. Some of them had breakfast with him. Some of them had conversations with him. Over 500 of them personally saw him. The whole reason this movement is growing is not because of some teaching. It's not because of some, you know, you just got to have faith kind of mentality. No, it's because 
we saw a dead man walking and or we know somebody who saw a dead man walking so we're on board with jesus these are people who are holding on to it's so fresh to them the idea of a resurrection and yet just after jesus leaves this earth they run into the same tension that all of us face. These early followers had moments. If you read Acts, you'll see this for yourself. They had moments when a leader would get arrested or when someone was facing persecution or when they needed a God to come through in some miraculous way. And you know what? He would. He would. And they would, they would be praying, and the next thing you knew, somebody would knock on the door, and the person who was in jail they were praying would be freed was standing there at the door. And it was unbelievable to them. But they also had these moments, and we're going to look at one today, where they would have a leader who was arrested, and they would pray and pray and pray, and the next thing they had heard was the news that he had been beheaded, or he had been crucified, or he had been tortured in some way. And so can you imagine, I mean, they had the same questions we have. Can you imagine trying to navigate through, wait a minute, God, I'm like, like you, did it for, you did it for him, you did it for Peter. You're not going to do it for him. You did it for, you know, John. You're not going to do it for James. Like, you, can you imagine navigating through all that? They faced a lot of bottom-of-the-ninth moments that ended in losses, just as many as the ones that ended in comebacks. And today I want to tell you the story of one that you may not be super familiar with, but he was a key, key influencer in the early days of the church. His name was Stephen. Stephen. Now, Stephen steps onto the you know, scene as far as we're concerned. In Acts chapter 6, here's a little backstory to kind of tell you a little bit about this guy. So the church was going really rapidly there in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. and um, it, There were thousands upon thousands of people who were believing because of the resurrection. It happened right there. So many people had seen, you know, people were following Jesus. And as the church grew, 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 grew and got really, fat, uh, really big really quickly, there were a lot of needs that needed to be met. And in those days, there was not the support network. There wasn't the government support. There were, there, you know, they, if, if somebody had a need, then it required somebody else in the community to meet it, especially if it was a woman who had a need. And so there were a lot of Jewish widows and a lot of Hebrew, or excuse me, Greek widows in the church in those days who didn't have enough to eat. They had lost their husbands. They were elderly. They couldn't provide for themselves. They didn't have family there to provide for them. And so the church decided we have to rally around them and we have to provide some food for them. So every single day, the leaders of the church would try to deliver food to all of these Hebrew or Jewish widows, and to all of these Greek widows. Well, it became so, there's so many of them, it became such a big operation that this handful of leaders, they just couldn't handle it all and do everything else they were doing. And so some balls started to get dropped, and people weren't getting quite the food on a regular basis. And some days some people got skipped. And I'm telling you, yeah, I mean, if you've ever dealt in this world, you know, you mess with grandmama's meals on wheels and you're in trouble quickly. Like, people get upset. So, there, there started to be a lot of tension and a lot of arguing going on, and it became a deal of, well, we think you're giving preference to the Jewish widows because you're Jewish, and us Greek widows were getting left to the side. And so what the leaders decided to do is they chose seven men from the church whose sole job was going to be to serve these widows. And they were men who had a lot of respect and a lot of influence in, in, the, in the community. And Stephen was one of those men. As a matter of fact, they described Stephen as a man full of God's grace and power. That's how people viewed him. And so he quickly became a leader there and began to serve the needs of people. And as this movement keeps growing, Stephen goes beyond just serving food. Stephen starts jumping in and helping to share the message. And, you know, more and more people are starting to believe. Stephen becomes a key figure there. And everybody is happy about it except the Pharisees. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible much or the, you know, first century story, the Pharisees were an interesting group of people because they were the most religious people in Jerusalem. Their whole job, their whole point was to identify the Messiah 
when he came to make sure nobody missed him. And so everybody would start to follow, and yet the Messiah came, and they missed it completely because all they were concerned about was protecting their power. And so this new movement, you know, they're, they're in Judaism. They're practicing the Jewish religion of Judaism. That's where all their power lies. And so for a new movement to threaten Judaism is a threat to their power and it's a threat to their livelihood. It's a threat to their future. And so, you know, if you know the story, you know that they were very aggressively against this movement. They were the ones who were most responsible for orchestrating the crucifixion of Jesus. And now they are the ones who are deciding, no, 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 we're not going to let this thing take off. We've got to stop this in its tracks. And so they are aggressively moving against this new movement of Jesus followers, which means when Stephen, Stephen comes across the scene and they see the impact he's having in the community, they have had all they can stand, and so they have Stephen arrested. And interestingly enough, they, they accuse Stephen of the very same thing they accuse Jesus of, slandering their Judaic religion. That was the accusation against him. And so here's what happens in the start of Acts chapter 7. They bring Stephen in front of the Sanhedrin. Now, this is just fascinating to me, but hopefully I'll explain it in a way where it fascinates somebody besides me, okay? But anyway, hang with me. So, so they bring him for the Sanhedrin. These are about 70 men, 70 men, the religious leaders. These are the same 70 men that Jesus was tried before. Uh, his crucifixion. These are the same 70 men who said to Pilate, we want you to crucify him, okay? The exact same guys. There have only been a few weeks, maybe a, f a couple months that have passed. And so Stephen is standing in front of these guys. Stephen knows who these men are. He's standing in front of these men. He's being accused of the very same thing they accused Jesus of. And Stephen knows this could be the end for me. I know what they did to Jesus. If they would do that to Jesus, why wouldn't they do that to me? And so they go through this whole accusation, and then they, the, the chief priest or the high priest looks at Stephen and says, what do you have to say for yourself? At which point, Stephen could have done the thing that would be most self-preserving. Stephen could have looked at them and said, you know what, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm so grateful for what you guys have done for our country over the years and for Judaism, and you know, I didn't mean to offend you. I mean, he could have taken that route, but he does not. Instead, he launches into, and this is so insulting, we, we don't get this, but he launches into... A history lesson of the Jewish people, which had all, I mean, these are religious experts. It'd be like doing this to a group of preachers. It's kind of like everybody's rolling their eyes, like, don't you think we know this already? But he goes through Abraham and Moses, and he retells the story. And then when he gets to the end, when he could have stopped, and maybe he'd have been okay. Instead, he decides to connect the dots for them and help them to understand how he views them, which is, you are the guys who should have seen it because you know the story. You should have known Jesus was who he said he was, and yet you missed it. And so I want to read to you what he decides to tell them in the middle of this trial. Here's where we're going to pick up. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. He says to these religious leaders, pointing his finger at them, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You were just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. There's no way for us to understand just how insulting this was. But, I mean, this, as you're going to see in a minute, this just infuriated these men. Basically, Stephen looks at them and says, you have always fought against God. Like, what's wrong with you people? Y'all are supposed to be the ones who are pointing us to God. You're always fighting against God and what he's doing. You always resist God's work wherever you see it. And you do it just because you want to hold on to power for yourself. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. Now, let me see if I can explain this part so you know just, just how angry this had to make them. When I was growing up, I don't know if this is true for you, when I was growing up, I played sports, basketball in particular, and there was a lot of smack talk that happens on a basketball court. 
And um, I might have engaged in a little more than that than, when, when that was healthy as I was growing up. And I should say, because my mama's here today, mama did not approve of that at all. But I had enough daddy in me, I could keep getting away with it. You know, I just kept doing it. So there was a, I learned how to do it where mama couldn't see from the stands. But there was a lot of smack talk that went on. And when you're on a basketball court, you can say a lot of things to the other guy. The line you do not cross is you do not bring his mama into it. That's, that's the line. Like, if you played sports, you know this. Like, you can say about whatever you want to say, but the minute you say something about his mama, there's going to be a fight. There will be a throwdown. It gets ugly in a hurry. Okay, well, in the first century, you could say whatever you want to about somebody's mama. They didn't care. But if you looked at somebody and said, your daddy's so uncircumcised, they were throwing punches at you. I mean, it was kind of the equivalent to today, okay? It was so insulting. And he looks at them and basically just throws it down. You guys, you guys are so uncircumcised. Your hearts, your ears, you're not paying any attention to what God's doing. You're fighting against God at every step of the way. And he's not done. He's not done. He goes on and he says this, verse 52. Was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute. Now he's bringing the whole family, the whole history into it. He's like, this isn't just a problem with you. We can talk about your daddy, your granddaddy, your great-granddaddy, your great-great-granddaddy. Y'all have all been the same way. I mean, can you imagine how infuriating this was? He says they, talking about their ancestors, they even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Somebody'd stand up and say, oh, I think the Messiah is coming, and y'all wouldn't listen to him. Y'all just, just kill him because you wanted to have the power for yourselves. Keep reading. He goes on and says, and now you, so he's getting personal again, he's pointing his finger, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Now, how bold do you have to be? I mean, again, he knows these are the men who just had his leader crucified. And now he's going to stand up in front of them and just let them have it. This is bold. This is courageous. This is the kind of thing, though, come on, think about it. This is the kind of thing that you would expect God to be looking down from heaven and say, Stephen, I am so proud of you. Stephen, I can't believe you just had the courage to do that. Stephen, I'm honoring that kind of faith. I'm honoring that kind of courage. I'm honoring that kind of boldness. And, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move in the hearts of these guys. You kind of expect this story to end where it would say next, and then God convicted all the religious leaders, and they turned and began to follow Jesus. But that is not what happens. What happens is what? You would expect to happen if you insult people who have already crucified your leader. Here's what Luke tells us happens next. At this, verse 57, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. This sounds like something my five-year-old does when she doesn't get what she wants, right? It's like, I'm not going to listen to you, Dad. I mean, they were so angry, they just charged him, yank him completely out of the city, pick up stones and begin to pelt him. And then Luke gives us this little piece of information. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, who was a part of the Sanhedrin. He was a young, up-and-coming Pharisee. This is not exactly how you would think the story would end. This isn't, you find Stephen in a bottom of the ninth moment, no doubt. But you would expect, come on, the resurrection's just happened. Stephen's not backing down. Stephen's being bold. Stephen's been serving. Stephen's a man full of God's grace and power. Stephen's somebody who is helping so many people in his community. You would expect God to show up. If there's ever anybody who's going to get a comeback in the bottom of the ninth, it's going to be Stephen. If there's ever somebody who's going to get an answered prayer, if there's ever someone, ever someone who's going to see a miracle, it would have to be Stephen. But so far, no miracle. So far, notice this, so far, there is no evidence whatsoever of God's presence and of God's activity. 
in their lives. The story goes on. Luke says this. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. Those are two of the very same things that Jesus prayed when he was on the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And here Stephen is in his moment where he's about to, to die. And he is praying the very same two things. Again, how, how can you handle a bottle of the knife any better than this? And where is God? And why is he not intervening? And why is he not showing these religious leaders that Stephen's telling the truth? And that he's going to protect and defend this man. But it does not happen. Luke goes on to tell us this. When he, Stephen, had said this, he fell asleep. He fell asleep. Which is first century talk for he died. That was it. And all those early followers of Jesus, all those early followers of Jesus, wondered, God, where are you? God, we prayed for Peter, and Peter was delivered. We prayed for Stephen, and Stephen is stoned. God, why, why no comeback? Why no answered prayer? Why no miracle here? I mean, why wouldn't you step in and do something for Stephen? Now, listen, we can this is a part of the story we can relate to, right? Because we've asked the same questions, and we have wondered the same things. Your situation has certainly been different, but you have felt those emotions. You have felt those emotions when maybe for you it was a foreclosure on your house, and you watched somebody else move in, and you watched the locks changed, and you realized, oh my goodness, I never thought it would get here. I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I trusted, and trusted, and I believed, and I believed, and nothing happened. Like, we still lost the house. And it felt like game over, lights out, everybody's walking out of the stadium, and you don't know what to do or where to turn next. I mean, where do you go? You just lost. Maybe for you it was when you knew your company was restructuring, and you, but you thought you were safe. You thought everything was going to work out for you. That's what you'd been told, and then out of the blue it catches you completely off guard, and you get a pink slip, and you're told you're done. And you're just shell-shocked, and you're thinking, well, how could this happen? Like, I was doing all the right things, and I was working hard, and, you know, serving people here in my company. How could this happen to me? But it is game over, lights out, and you're just left wondering, where do I turn next? Everybody seems to have drifted out of the stadium, and you're there all alone. Maybe for you it was when the doctor looked at you and said, there is nothing more we can do. Or your days are numbered. And you thought, why wouldn't God step in here? I mean, why wouldn't God do something? Like uh, The thing I'm praying for, the thing I'm asking for, is such a good thing. It is such a good thing. It is such a helpful thing. Like, Why wouldn't God answer that prayer? Maybe for you is when you were told, you've exhausted all your options. We don't know what else to do to help you have a child. Or maybe it was when you were told, hey, your, your son, your daughter, they've been through rehab. We've helped them as much as we can help them. But they're gone, and you realize they're not coming back. Those moments are tough, aren't they? Because in those moments, you wonder, God, where are you? Do you even care? Like, why wouldn't you intervene here? 
in those moments, sometimes you wonder, what did I do wrong? Like, did I just not have enough faith? Like, if I believed more? And sometimes, maybe that's what you were told. If you just believed a little more, it would have happened. It must be your fault. Can't be God's. What do you do in those moments? How do you navigate through that? Those are the very same questions and tensions that those early followers of Jesus were wrestling through. And what made it even worse for them, and you, some of you can relate to this, is the issue that happened, the death of Stephen, not only signaled a loss for him, but it signaled the beginning of a bottom of the ninth for all of the early followers of Jesus. Luke tells us that immediately after Stephen's death, this happens. Next slide. And Saul, and Saul, the same Saul who was there watching Stephen be stoned. How callous and hard-hearted do you have to be? The same man, Saul, approved of their killing Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Suddenly, it was a bottom of the knife for everybody. Suddenly, nobody was safe. Suddenly, this, you know, it, it was like the door had gotten unlocked. The gates had been thrown open. And Christians, it was, it was free hunting on Christians in Jerusalem. And they scattered, and they ran. And they went wherever they could find and wherever they knew somebody to try to protect themselves and their families. Because now, it was hidden close to home. Now it wasn't just their leader. Now it was anyone who followed this man named Jesus. And they had to figure out, what are we going to do with that? Now, here's what's so interesting about this. What's so interesting is God was at work even though they could not see. And we have the, the benefit of you know, hindsight. We have the benefit of, benefit of looking back and saying, Oh, yeah, look at all the great things that came out of this. But they didn't know at the time. What they did not realize at the time was God was at work specifically in two ways. One, God took a very, very tragic thing, and he used it to spread the message of Jesus throughout the region. Because up till that point, these followers of Jesus had just stayed comfortable right in their homes, right in Jerusalem, right where they were you know, used to being. And this forced them to flee all throughout that region. And as they did, they began telling people, about Jesus, and the message began to spread. And the other thing God was doing that they could not possibly have known was that God was getting the attention of this man named Saul, this man that we know of by his Greek name Paul, but his Hebrew name was Saul. And Saul is standing there watching the death of Stephen, and then Saul takes the mantle and the, you know, the responsibility upon himself to lead this persecution of all these Christians. But in the midst of doing that, Saul has a personal encounter with Jesus. And he goes from being the chief persecutor of the church to the chief proponent of it. He goes from trying to stop this movement called the way at the time, these Jesus followers, to spreading it. And literally, Saul took it and spread it throughout the entire world. We're sitting here today because a man named Saul wouldn't stop telling people in the farthest reaches of their world, that Jesus died and rose again. We're sitting here because Saul said, it's not just for Jews, it's for all people, and I'm going to go to all people. Like, you guys just keep telling the Jews, that's fine, you stay comfortable. I'm just going to go to the rest of the world. And we're here today because of it. But you know the seed that began that transformation in Saul, I think, was when he stood there watching the death of Stephen. When he stood there watching someone who was being stoned to death say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this against them. And it planted a seed that God used to transform a life, which eventually transformed a world.
Now, here's the point, and here's what you and I think can walk away with, and here's the thing that I find so encouraging in this story. It's simply this idea that you can be used even when you lose. You can be used even when you lose. That you've gone through a bottom of the ninth, and you're not seeing God do anything, and you're thinking, well, wait a minute, you know, God, if you would just do a miracle, if you would just answer this prayer, then I could tell, tell everybody, then everyone would see that there's a God, and, you know, people would start following you, and he's going, no, 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 in this case... I'm not going to do anything, but just because I'm not answering your prayer, just because I'm not changing your circumstance, doesn't mean you can't be used and this can't be used. You can be used even when you lose. Now, now here's why we miss this, and I'm just like you, I'm just like you. We miss this because when we're in the bottom of the knife, what's our prayer revolve around? Our prayer is simply, God, remove it, right? God, remove it, whatever it is. God, remove the obstacle, God, remove the challenge. God, remove the difficulty. God, remove, God, remove, God, remove. Everything about our focus when we're in the bottom of the knife is simply God, change it, God, change it, God, remove it, God, remove it. And we miss the reality that even if he doesn't, we can still be used. Maybe it would be healthier for us to pray, God, I want you to remove it. God, I want you to use it. But even if you don't, I want you to use it. Imagine how our relationship with our Heavenly Father would be different if we went through bottom of the ninth losses leaning into our Heavenly Father that way. To say, okay, I'm, uh, this is not what I would want. This is not how I would write the story. This is not what I would envision. And God, I'm not going to quit asking you to change this, but even if you don't change it, I want you to use it. You think you would approach your loss a little differently? You think you would view that circumstance or situation from a different perspective? Of course you would. And so would I, if you understood that you can be used even when you lose. That a loss doesn't mean God has left you. And a loss doesn't mean there's no purpose to what you're going through. It just means God's at work in a bigger and a different way than what you can imagine. So the question is, how do you go through losses and respond in such a way God can use you. Now, here's what I found interesting. As I started asking myself that question and kind of thinking it through, you know who holds the answer for us? Saul, the same guy who led the persecution on the front end. If you fast forward to the end of his life, he is sitting in a Roman prison cell, and he knows his execution is imminent. And he's writing to a, a young protege, so to speak, named Timothy, a young kid that he's been mentoring and coaching up. And as he writes a letter to Timothy, knowing his days are numbered and they're almost at an end, Saul says to him, we know him as Paul now, but it's Saul. Saul says to him, hey, Timothy, here's how God can use you even when you lose because I'm about to lose and I know I'm about to lose. Like, I don't think there's a miracle here. I don't think there's a comeback happening. I'm in my bottom of the ninth and the, the game's going to be over. The lights are going to go out. My life's going to end. But he gives us a secret. To being used. Here's what he said. 2 Timothy chapter 4. He wrote this. I, Timothy, I want you to know, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race, and I've kept the faith. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and i kept the faith. There are three things you and I do when we're in a bomb of the night that allow God's, God to use us even when we lose. Here they are. The first one Paul teaches us is to fight. Now, this is what I love about this. Paul said, I fought the good fight. In other words, I didn't just resign myself to whatever happens, happens. I'm just leaving it all in God's hands. He says, I've done everything I can in my power to change my circumstances. I've done everything I can in my power to live my life the way I thought it needed to be lived. This is Paul's way of saying, I confronted the brutal facts, 
And I kept believing. I kept trusting. I kept doing everything in my power. When you were in the bottom of the night, there is nothing wrong with praying, God, please remove it. God, please change it. There's nothing wrong with doing everything in your power to try to turn around that situation. You should. You should. That's what it means to fight. But you don't stop there. Paul says next, you have to finish. You have to finish well. He said, I finished the race. You have to finish well. It doesn't matter if it ends in a win or it ends in a loss. Paul says, you need to finish this race equally well. Now, here's what this looks like practically. It means you suddenly get a pink slip, and however many days or hours you have left at work, you make the most of them, and you work just as hard on your last day as you did on your first. You finish well, even when there's no motivation to finish well. It means financially, when you lose the house, you clean that thing up and you have it sparkling for the next person who walks in. You finish well. It means in that relationship that it feels like, you know, this is never going to be restored and things will never be right. You still finish well. And you never speak bad about them. You take the high road every single time. And you finish well. This is part of how God uses you when you lose, by how you finish. When you finish well, it opens the door for him to use you in bigger ways than he could otherwise. And then third, Paul says, you got to keep the faith. you got to keep the faith. Now, here's what I love about this. This is simply believing that just because you lose doesn't mean God's left you. That's what it means. Keeping the faith just means, you know what, I'm going to keep following you and I'm going to keep trusting you even if you don't do what I want you to do. Now, here's what, this is true for me. I, I think this is probably true for you. Even if you're not a Christian, I would say that you have watched people do this and you would feel the same way I do about it. There is one level of faith that is required for somebody to pray and pray and pray and trust and trust and trust and believe and believe and believe in their bottom of the knife and then they see God come through for them. That's one level of faith, and it's impressive, and it's great to see, and we celebrate when that happens. But do you know who, as far as I'm concerned, who has the greatest faith, the biggest faith? you know whose faith impresses me the most? The people who pray and pray and believe and believe, and God doesn't come through. God doesn't change their circumstance. Who believe and believe and pray and pray, and nothing gets better, it gets worse, and they lose. And you see them after they've lost, and their faith in God is not any weaker than it was before. They still trust, they still believe, they still love, they still follow. I mean, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've got to admit, when you watch somebody lose, and yet their faith and, and trust and love in their Heavenly Father is unshaken, there's something very impressive about that, isn't there? There's something about that that causes you to kind of lean in and say, whoa, how are they doing that? Like, how, how are they still believing? How are they still trusting? Why aren't they angry at God? There's something about that that is extraordinarily impactful to the people around us. And it's simply because of this idea, next slide, that how you live as you lose determines how you can be used. How you live as you lose is going to determine how God uses you and how God uses that loss and how God uses that situation in your life. It is. It's going to determine it. How you live as you lose always determines how you can be used. Now, here's what I love about this. When you respond by trusting your heavenly father. What you discover is the thing that you actually want most in the middle of a loss. You discover purpose in the midst of your pain. You discover meaning in the midst of your mess. Now the thing we all say we want when you know, we're praying and God's not answering and things aren't happening and life is tough. The thing that we all think we want is answers. 
We all think we want, give me, God, if you just give me an answer and explain to me why. Explain to me why you haven't done this and why you haven't done that and why you let that happen and why I lost that person and why and why and why. We think we want to know why, but the reality is none of us actually want the answers. And I'll tell you why I know that. Because if you get answers, and some of you have in some cases, when you get answers or if you get answers, it does not resolve the pain, does it? It does not resolve the pain. What you and I most want in a bottom of the ninth when we lose, we don't want answers. We want purpose. We don't want answers. We want to know that we have a Heavenly Father who is with us and loves us and is going to walk with us through it, and He is at work using this, that this pain, that this experience, that this loss is not going to be wasted. That's what we want. And Stephen is a great example that that's what we can have. That's what we can have. But it all depends on how we respond because how you live as you lose determines how you can be used. So, as we wrap up, here's what all I want to do. I want to give you a prayer that you can pray. A prayer to pray if you're in the middle of the bottom of the ninth. A prayer to pray if you've just come out of a loss or if you're going into a loss. A prayer to pray that, you know, to hold on to and pray maybe one day when you find yourself in this situation. And if you're not a Christian, this, you know, you can pray this or not pray this, but I'm telling you, there's something very powerful that'll happen. Even if you're not a Christian, if you'll start praying this when you're in the bottom of the ninth, you will discover that your Heavenly Father is more active and more at work and more loving and more compassionate and more present in your life than you realize. Here's, here's the prayer. It's so simple, but it's so powerful. Father, remove it, but most of all, use it, even if I lose. We, we pray the first part, Father, remove it. We got that. But if you're in the middle of a bottom of the ninth, would you just add to this? But most of all, I want you to remove it. I want you to change it. But most of all, I want you to use it, even if I lose. I don't want this to be a wasted season of my life. Because you can be used even when you lose. And your heavenly father can walk with you and show you just how personal he is, just how much he cares, and just how much he loves you. And in the end, as much as we want answers and as much as we want changes, as much as we want wins, what we need and what we want most is confidence in his presence that he is with us. And he promises he is. Let's pray. Father, for those who are facing their own bottom of the ninth situations right now, it's different for everybody, but it is equally painful, it is equally emotional, it is equally challenging. And I wouldn't begin to try to say that I fully understand what they're facing or what they're going through, but God, in the, in the midst of their situation, would you make your presence very real to them, and would you give them the wisdom and the courage to be able to lean in to their loss or lean into their pain, to lean into their difficulty, and with all their questions and all their doubts, to say, yeah, Father, I want you to remove this. I want you to change this. But most of all, even if you don't, I want you to use this in my life. And would you show up in such a way that even if you don't do what you want them to do, they will see and they will know that you care and that you're there and use it for a purpose and for a meaning bigger than they could ever imagine. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, the one who experienced this and the one 
who makes it possible for us to experience it. Amen.